So today's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians, and it's chapter 10, and it's verses 1 to 6. Paul's defence of his ministry. By the meekness and greatness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. This is the word of the Lord. May I begin this morning by adding my welcome to those of you here in church as well as, you, as well as those of you joining us via YouTube. Having considered giving over the past three weeks, we come today to the beginning of the final section of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, in which he makes an impassioned defense of his leadership and of his authority. Back in the days of my youth, and before anyone says it, yes, it was roughly the time Noah was a lad, I would get sent periodically on a variety of management development courses, where almost inevitably the question of what makes a good leader would be discussed at great length. It's interesting, of course, that we were asked to debate the characteristics of a good leader on what were generally branded as management development courses, because there is, of course, an enormous gulf between management and leadership. One definition of the difference between management and leadership that I came across the other day is that management is about persuading people to do things they don't want to do, while leadership is about inspiring people to do things they never thought they could, which explains, of course, why good managers rarely make good leaders. Of course, the answer to the question, what makes a good leader, will depend very much on the context and your viewpoint. And very often we find leaders who achieve great things in particular circumstances and yet find it very difficult to adapt to others. Many regard this man, Winston Churchill, despite all his shortcomings, often self-acknowledged and including his black dog, as he called it, of depression, as one of the greatest leaders this country has seen, certainly in recent times. But whilst he led the country to victory in the Second World War, he never really achieved the same success as a peacetime leader in the years that followed. Perhaps not altogether surprising, given the enormous differences that exist between leading a nation in its existential fight for survival in a global conflict and seeking to rebuild a nation shattered and exhausted by war. Of course, Churchill had his opponents. But there are those leaders who seem to so polarise opinion that they are simultaneously a superhero who can do no wrong to their supporters and yet who are vilified beyond all measure and can do no right by others and for whom there is simply no middle ground. Perhaps the 
Most recent and high-profile example of such a character is this man, Donald Trump, who continues to polarise opinion in a manner that few others have achieved in recent times at least. But it has to be said that such polarisation, such division, represents a worrying and dangerous trend. Styles of leadership vary enormously, and different situations require different leadership skills and styles. Good leadership on the battlefield is very different to leadership in the boardroom. Technology leadership is very different to leading the debate on how we tackle matters such as climate change, and leading a team fixing an issue with a high-pressure gas pipe requires another set of skills altogether again, somewhat akin to herding cats on occasion. Fixing leaking gas pipes is one thing that the Apostle Paul didn't have to deal with. So let's leave such issues behind and come back with me now, if you will, 2,000 years or so, as we discover how Paul seeks to defend his authority and his leadership of the early church to the Corinthian Christians. If you've closed your Bibles, can I encourage you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which you can find on page 1165 of the Church Bibles. And as we do so, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you called Paul to lead the spread of your church across the length and breadth of the known world. Thank you that Paul heard and responded to your call and that through his ministry, but ultimately through the power of your spirit, your church spread and grew. As we consider the situation in that church, the early church there in Corinth, help us to see the parallels within the church across the world today. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up those committed to leading your people. Help us to encourage those who do so and to follow them in all things that are in accordance with your word. Help us to hear you speaking through your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds open to the leading of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Leaders, in whatever context need authority to lead, and to lead with authority. And as soon as that authority is lost, it's very difficult to re-establish it. I think we've seen that principle played out in our own political arena, where in the eyes of many, our Prime Minister has lost a great deal of moral authority over the various parties that may or may not have taken place in Downing Street during periods when the rest of the nation were locked down. A case of... What I used to be told as a child by my grandfather, don't do as I do, do as I tell you. But such an approach is no longer tenable because authority and integrity in leadership are so closely interwoven. Paul himself was, and for some today remains, a contentious character. And it's clear from his opening comments in chapter 10 that he'd come under stinging attack regarding his style of leadership, leading many to question his authority. He's clearly been criticised for being timid when face-to-face with the Corinthian Christians, but bold when away from them, being accused of being too worldly in his style, which, as we shall discover, was the ultimate irony as the root of this claim is the fundamental difference between Paul as he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and the outwardly impressive ministers who brought that false gospel to the church in Corinth. Let's just remind ourselves about what we know about these false ministers and something about their style. 
If we turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, it's clear that these false ministers brought letters of recommendation with them and were seemingly looking for letters of recommendation in return. By contrast, Paul says that they, the Christians of Corinth, they're the only letter of recommendation that's needed, known to Paul read by everyone. Paul is saying he doesn't need letters of recommendation written on paper or parchment. The lives of those who've come to Christ are all the testimony that's necessary. Lives that are a letter from Christ, not written with ink on bits of paper, but written by the Spirit of the living God, not written on tablets of stone, but the tablets of human hearts. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but when you try to buy something online, you read the reviews of the product and come away completely confused. Because on the one hand, you'll have those who testify that the product or place or restaurant or hotel is absolutely the best ever. And then there are those who, with equal vehemence, will tell you that the product is the worst thing they've ever bought, the worst place they've ever been, the worst restaurant they've ever eaten in, or the worst hotel they've ever stayed at. And it can be almost impossible to sift through all the conflicting reviews to try and work out what are the true comments and what have been put there by those who have an interest in making a comment one way or the other or just got a grudge to bear, an axe to grind. The letters of recommendation that these false ministers brought with them are like the sponsored reviews that are so common today. For nobody is going to present anything other than a glowing report in a letter of recommendation. Though nowadays, sadly, we aren't allowed to write references such as along the lines of whoever gets X or Y or Z to work for them will be extremely fortunate. Apparently it's disallowed. But the false teachers who'd so ensnared and beguiled a significant proportion within that church in Corinth had, become, had come bearing letters of recommendation, the authenticity of which couldn't be validated. These letters of recommendation extolled their virtues, told how wonderful they were. By contrast, Paul says, just look at what you see around you. Not letters written in ink or engraved on tablets of stone. Instead, Paul points to the lives of all the people around and about in the city of Corinth whose lives have been transformed, whose hearts have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and whose lives, rather than being given over to all the debauchery that Corinth was notorious for, have become living testimony to the power of Christ at work in their lives. Paul points to the people around them, the people they see, the people, the transformed lives, as the letter, the only letters of recommendation that are required. Jumping ahead a little bit to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians and verses 12 and 13, Paul continues his theme of these false ministers taking pride in what's seen rather than what's in the heart, going on to say that if they, that's Paul and his fellow's work, fellow workers, are out of our mind, out of their mind, as some say, it is for God, and if we're in our right minds, it's for you. As is well documented, one of the challenges within the Corinthian church was the question of speaking in tongues, of ecstatic utterances. And Paul is really clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that while speaking in tongues is a blessing, 
Doing so is worthless unless accompanied by interpretation of what's said. I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others, Paul writes, than 10,000 words in a tongue. By contrast, these false teachers were speaking in false tongues, seemingly having spiritual experiences to demonstrate their apparent spiritual superiority, but it was all being done for show, for status. It wasn't genuine, was of no value. And then if we read on a few verses into chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and we won't dwell on this as we'll come to these verses in more detail in a couple of weeks, these false ministers boast of how far they've come and what they've done before reaching there, or perhaps what others may have done. Paul sums all this up in verse 12 of chapter 10, where he writes, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Paul's ministry here is being compared adversely by his critics within the Corinthians church to those who are big on style but completely lacking in substance, where that substance is living a Christ-centered life focused on proclaiming the word of God. The problem is that such behavior then as now is very beguiling. It is attractive. It will draw people in, often in vast numbers. Someone faithfully preaching God's word in a way that brings glory to God and not to the preacher is never going to have the same popular appeal as a false message delivered by those who seek to make much of themselves at the expense of God and his word. Yet it was Paul who was being accused of being worldly. Now, having said all of that, It's not an excuse for bad bad preaching or dull sermons, so apologies if that's what you've got this morning. But at the heart, it's about bringing the glory to God. It's about bringing the glory to God and not the preacher, both in the pulpit and in the course of the lives and ministry day by day of those called to proclaim God's word. Of course, anyone called to proclaim God's word should seek to do so clearly and engagingly. But all the time, the focus has got to be on God and on his word. His word as it's set out here in the scriptures. One of the great challenges is that when God's word is truly and faithfully proclaimed, it is challenging, it is uncomfortable. As the writer of the Hebrews expresses it, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And God's word, faithfully preached, should challenge us to the very core And it should invoke a response, just as it did in Corinth, because it will force us, if we hear it, to face up to the wrong in our lives or to challenge our thoughts, as perhaps it's done for some these past weeks when we've been considering our giving to God's work. Wherever we went, wherever he went, including when he was in Corinth, Paul sought to mimic Jesus Christ in his life and in his ministry. Paul did his utmost to follow the example of Jesus 
who, despite being the Son of God, humbled himself to come to live on earth. He was born in a stable, lived as a carpenter's son in a poor backwater of the Roman Empire. Ultimately, he died on a cross, convicted by a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges in what is, at the most basic level, the greatest miscarriage of justice in all eternity. Although, of course, with hindsight, it was all a part of God's great plan of salvation. And one of the key attributes of any leader is authenticity. And I don't think that anyone can argue that Paul was utterly, truly authentic. He wasn't perfect, and nobody is ever claiming that he was perfect. But he is and was authentic. And at the heart of the criticism was the perceived contrast between Paul's humility when he was with the Christians and his apparent boldness when away from them. Over the years, I've had experience of trying to run complex design projects in different locations around the world, and it's hard, even with the benefit of modern communications. Trying to lead a project in Japan involving various parties was a particular challenge complicated by time differences, as well as cultural and language challenges. Thankfully, my Japanese counterparts spoke far better English than I was ever able to speak Japanese. But even then, things progressed a lot better when I came to realise that the mysterious and seemingly all-prevailing substance in our process that my Japanese counterpart referred to as rikid was, in fact, liquid. Once we'd established that, things went an awful lot better. But with that project over months, years, a couple of years in there, to maintain momentum, it was necessary for me to visit Japan every six weeks or so, a long and gruelling journey of around 24 hours each way, door to door. In between these visits, there'd be some very long and at times very difficult conversations. At times it was necessary to be very firm regarding how things needed to be done, and I remember some similarly long and difficult conversations when I was out in Japan speaking to my boss back home when we'd reached a seemingly impossible impasse, something that we, they wanted that we couldn't accept. And I hate to think what my mobile phone world was, as these visits, these visits predated things like internet calling. But jumping back to the situation in Corinth, Paul, who was in Macedonia at the time, he wrote this letter, was having to be firm with the Corinthians to deal with the issues that were at serious risk of at best tearing the church apart and at worst completely destroying it. Even though Paul wasn't very far away in Macedonia when he wrote this letter, he didn't have the luxury of just hopping on a plane to go and deal with the issues face to face, but he had to deal with the issues by the only means that he had available to him. Letter. Couldn't pick a phone up, he couldn't email them. He had to send a letter. And sending a letter was even slower than it can be by the Royal Mail today. Travel then was even more difficult, dangerous and time-consuming. So he had to send a letter with someone who was willing to carry it there and then wait patiently several weeks for the reply to come back. And scholars believe that Paul wrote an intervening letter to the Corinthians between his first and what we know as his first and second letters. Second is probably the third letter uh, in reality. 
That intervening letter hasn't survived. We don't have a copy of it. But that was clearly seen as especially challenging by some in the Corinthian church. And the reality is that in this letter, Paul was having to speak very bluntly in order to correct some serious issues that were matters of spiritual life and death, which needed dealing with to save the individuals involved. Now, it's human nature that none of us like being told off or told that what we're doing is wrong. So it's perhaps no surprise that there were those within the church in Corinth who took umbrage at Paul's tone in this missing letter. But let's be clear, he was dealing with some really serious matters of church discipline, which had eternal consequences. Not because he was some arch-disciplinarian who got a kick out of telling people off, but because of his love for God's people. So Paul then is seeking to defend his ministry, his authority, his leadership against those who have fallen under the sway of these ministers and leaders who put focus on themselves, not on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians that when amongst them, he did nothing more than seek to imitate Christ, just as they and we should but that he was forced to write to them boldly to point out and to correct those who were breaking God's law so that he wouldn't have to be as bold in confronting those individuals when he next visited in person. He was trying to nip the issue in the bud. But because of the seriousness of it, he had to get his point across. And any of us who have tried sending a difficult email, writing a difficult letter, would know how, just difficult, how difficult that is and how easy it is for what's written to be misinterpreted as well. But Paul is doing this out of love for the people in Corinth. And then Paul goes on to draw out a further contrast between the way of the world and the way of the gospel. In a very pertinent comparison for all of us today as we watch seemingly helplessly as Russia masses its armed forces around Ukraine, potentially ready to invade using very worldly weapons, Paul tells the Corinthians that although we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. Paul tells the Corinthians that the weapons that the Christian fights with are not the weapons of the world, but rather weapons that have divine power Divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, Paul writes. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. What are the weapons that Paul is speaking of here? Well, I believe it's a clear reference to the armour of God that Paul would go on to describe so eloquently a couple of years later in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6. The breastplate of righteousness. Our feet shod with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And then the only weapon that could be used offensively as well as defensively, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Because at the heart of all of this, Paul is engaged here in a real spiritual battle for the souls of the people. 
Many were being swayed by the false gospel being presented by these various false teachers, these false ministers. But Paul's love for the Corinthian Christians is passionate. He'll do everything he can to show them the error of their ways, to bring them back to Christ. How desperately we need leaders within the church today who are prepared to imitate Paul's example false teaching, or worse still, no teaching, is rife amongst the churches of this nation. Many years ago, I remember going to my goddaughter's confirmation service, and the bishop stood up in his cathedral and wittered on for ten minutes in the slot that was ostensibly the sermon about something he'd read in the Times the day before. In the whole of that confirmation service, there wasn't one mention of God or the Bible. And then we wonder why the church is in the mess that it's in. If we don't teach people, they don't know what to believe. So when they're challenged, or when they're tempted, they don't know the truth. And it's here. The truth is here in Scripture. We desperately, desperately, desperately need more People, leaders willing to stand up for the truth of Scripture. We need to pray for leaders who will stand up for the truth of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, we're so blessed here in Hartford and Greenbank by godly leaders who passionately believe and faithfully proclaim God's Word. We need to pray for their protection. We need to pray for God's continued blessing of them and their families as they continue to faithfully proclaim God's word, build up God's people here in this place. John, I'm afraid you're not perfect. None of us are perfect this side of heaven. But please, 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 let us all encourage our leaders in their leadership and in their ministry. They may need to discipline us at times in the same way that we need to hold them to account. But both must be done in love, following the biblical model that's contained again in Scripture. And remember, brothers and sisters, please, that any form of leadership is ultimately a lonely place to be. There are burdens that a leader has to carry, decisions that have to be made that they can share with nobody. Not even those closest to them. And Christian leadership is no exception, and maybe even worse. As a priest, you can be told things that you cannot simply, simply cannot share with anybody else. And that can make it a very lonely, very difficult place. Although, of course, as Christian leaders, they have the joy of being able to share their fears and concerns with God in prayer, just as we all do. But nevertheless, it still doesn't stop it from being, at times, a very difficult and lonely place. Those of you who were in house groups last term will have studied the book, Love Your Church. And if you weren't, I'd really encourage you to find a copy um, and, and read it. And of particular relevance to this morning's passage is chapter 6, entitled Honouring, subtitled Following Humble Shepherds. And here the author speaks of the late John Stott, and I quote from the book. K. 
Ken Perez, who knew Stott well through the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, said, Some people are impressive in public, but disappointing in private. John is the opposite. He is even more impressive in private than in public. His Christ-like gentleness, personal kindness and authenticity, note that word again, authenticity, are unforgettable. And he goes on to add that we should be praying that the Lord will raise up more leaders like this. Amen. We should perhaps compare this with the televangelist in America. I'm afraid I can't remember his name who called on his congregation to give generously in order to provide him with a new private jet that he felt God was calling him to have to support his ministry. So, John, please don't get any ideas. But as well as praying for our Christian ministers and leaders, we need to pray against the progressive drift in legislation in this country, which is in danger of preventing the faithful proclamation of God's word. And please, please continue to pray for Christian MPs that they would unite across party boundaries to scot such dangerous changes. No one specific piece of legislation, but just a general gradual drift in legislation that would outlaw a minister from standing in this pulpit and proclaiming God's word. We need to pray for ourselves that we would heed God's word, that we would recognize those areas where we fail to obey God's command, that we would be those living letters that Paul spoke of in chapter 3, a letter from Christ read by everyone. Shortly will come as part of the preparation for sharing the bread and wine of communion to a time of confession. And if I invite each one of us, especially this morning, to ask God's Holy Spirit to search our hearts to show us those areas where we most need to seek God's forgiveness and mercy. It's interesting to note that apparently Donald Trump never joins in the words of the confession in a church service because he doesn't believe he's done anything wrong that he needs to confess. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his love for those he called to serve you. Father, we pray for our leaders here at St. John's and at Christ Church, for Mike and Dim and John and Teresa, for Nathan, for all those who minister to your people. Father, thank you for the gifts that you've given them. Thank you for their love for you. Father, we pray that you would bless them, protect them, and keep them safe. Father, we pray for the raising up of Christian leaders committed to your word. Father, we give you thanks for all those who faithfully proclaim your word in this land and across the world. And Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would be faithful to your word, that we would be those living letters from Christ, read by all. We pray all these things to your honour and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.